John. So I, I hope you've enjoyed this series. For, for the last probably month and a half or so, or two months, we've been working all the way through the book of First John. And, uh, and we're at, finally at the end. Now, uh, the book of First John has become one of my favorites recently uh, because, it's, because, of how, because of the way that John writes and how, how challenging it is, really. As you read through the book of First John, you realize that there are some very difficult things in there. John speaks in, in very stark statements. He speaks in black and whites. He speaks in absolutes. He speaks with words that cause us to have to wrestle with it, to chew on it, to, to think about it deeply. The book has led us through a lot of different places. It, it's told us to strive towards perfection, towards a Jesus-like level of perfection, to, to, to try to be perfect. But it's also told us that there is no way that we can possibly do that. But doesn't, doesn't let us off the hook for trying. It showed us the importance of loving God. Love is a huge theme through the book of 1 John. It, it talks about how important it is to love God fully. And completely. And it's also talked about how important it is that we love each other. It's a book that shows us the difference between justification and sanctification, along with so many other things. It's a fantastic book. I hope you've, I hope you've enjoyed going all the way through it. I want to challenge you, uh, now that we're done, go back and read the whole thing again. And just see what new things come out to you. But today we're going to take a look at the last chapter. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to focus in on a few verses in particular. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 5 and 18 through 21. So the first few verses of the chapter and the last few verses of the chapter. We're going to look at three different things. We're going to look at the role of love in our kingdom lives. We're going to look at the role of love in overcoming the world. And we're going to look at the necessity of Christ when overcoming the world. So why don't we begin by just reading those two sections. So if you've got your Bibles, open them to 1 John chapter 5. And it reads, starting at verse 1, reads like this. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then we jump down to verse 18, which says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the, tr he is the true God and the eternal life. So dear children, keep yourself from idols. It's an interesting way to end the book, isn't it? But the passage begins by pointing, uh, by pointing out what it means to be Christian. And I, one of the things that I appreciate about the whole book of 1 John, and actually John in general, even in the Gospel of John, is how straightforward John is. 
he explains salvation incredibly simply. He says, if you accept Jesus as the Messiah, you are born of God. And that's all there is to salvation. And so often, I think, we try to make, so, make it so much more complicated than that. We attach riders on it. Well, sure, you have to accept Jesus and you have to do this and this and this. Or, yeah, if you've accepted Jesus, but you're doing this and this, then I'm not so sure. But John doesn't do that. Both in this book here and in the Gospel of John, he says, whoever believes in Jesus shall have eternal life or shall be saved. You see, the whole book of 1 John has been expressing this point. He's been saying salvation is easy for us. Now, don't confuse that. Salvation was not easy for Jesus. That's not, he never once says that. Salvation was incredibly difficult for Jesus. It wasn't cheap. He had to bear an an unbelievable weight in order for us to achieve that salvation. But because he did, that makes salvation easy for us. Because he's already paid the price. And we're going to have to remember that through the rest of the message tonight. John begins by saying, if you've accepted Jesus as the Messiah, then you're born of God. And so salvation, after that, after that, salvation is not what we're talking about anymore. We're talking about something different, which is what John will be talking about for the rest of the book. Because he's been saying in this book that salvation is easy, but the life that comes after it is not. The life that comes after it takes work. It's hard. We have to continually work that salvation out. Not to be saved, but to live the kind of life that God calls us to live. And so John continues. And he says, You are a child of God if you believe in Jesus, but if you love God, you must also love his children. See, the Bible hinges on two main principles. It says, love God first, and then love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus is asked to summarize the law, that's what he says, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And if we really stop and think about what that means and what that looks like, It is a beautiful picture of who our God is. Let me explain. He says our Christian life begins with a complete and full love of God. To focus on him first. To to give all our energy there. But our God is so good that his primary desire for us while loving him is to love everyone else. He says love me first. And because you love me, go and love everybody else. To me, that's a beautiful picture of how gracious and loving our God is. He went to direct love at him is to direct love towards everyone else. And that's what we've seen here in 1 John. Love God by loving his children. And he says we do that by keeping God's commands. You see, the commands of God are given in order for us, in order for us to love each other well. Or in other words, to spur one another on towards better things. But I think the problem is that we don't always view God's rules that way, do we? I think many of us view God's law, God's rules, God's instruction as a kind of measuring stick. Either to be applied to ourselves, where we say we know what God has called us to do. And here's where I am. And we can either use it as a way to make ourselves feel pretty good about ourselves. So God desires this, and I'm a, I'm a level 8 Christian. That's pretty good, right? We can make us feel really good about ourselves because we can use it as a measuring stick and see how close. Or we can make it, some people use it to feel terrible about themselves. 
well, this is what God wants and this is where I am, so I'm not good enough. Sometimes we view God's rules as a way to either make us feel good or bad about ourselves, as a measuring stick to see how valuable we are in God's eyes. Others of us, though, and this is probably worse, use it as a measuring stick to judge other people's value or worth in God's eyes, right? So this is what God wants, and Sally's right about there. I'm a seven, she's a five. She loses, right? We can use God, we can see God's rules, we can look at God's rules as a way to tell how good we are or how good someone else is. But let me tell you, that is not the intention of any of God's law. It's not a measuring stick to decide whether we are good enough or not. We know from this passage and many other places in the Bible that God has created us good enough already. That our value is the same as everyone else's when we accept Jesus Christ. It says we know that if we accept Jesus, we are considered children of God and God is not a father who has favorites or who loves, who loves other people more than others. Good enough isn't part of this equation. God's rules or law or instruction are given as a guide to lead us into the perfect kind of love. Now, it's really important to understand what we mean when we say perfect kind of love. We have some misunderstandings about that as well. And the best place to go if you're trying to understand love is 1 Corinthians 13. Which says this, it says love, you've all, I'm sure many of you have heard this before. It says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. When we talk about God's leading us in God's law leading us into a perfect kind of love, we need to realize that love is not simply just being nice to someone. I think many of us read the love passage and we kind of stop at verse 5, which if you don't have it open, you don't know where that is, but that's the part that says it keeps no record of wrongs. It's the love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud part. So we view love as being nice to someone, as, as being non-confrontational, as, as, as being, um, reducing friction between people. And, and of course, there are elements of love that are that, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It does not dishonor. It is not self-seeking. There are elements of kindness. There are elements of respect. There are elements of humility that have to come in with love. But we can't forget the second part of that passage as well, which says love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. Love protects and perseveres. You see, a per- the perfect kind of love that John is spurring us towards here is not passive. And it's not necessarily non-confrontational. Because honestly, sometimes to love someone is to call them out on their stuff. To gently push them back towards truth. Essentially, what John is saying is to love, or what Corinthians is saying is to love someone is to guide them towards the best kind of life. You see, when someone is in sin, you have to realize that it's keeping them from the fullest possible life. It's only to their own detriment and to the detriment of those around them. 
It isn't then loving to ignore it or to let it persist as is. We are called to act in that situation, not because the person's value has decreased in any way, which I think sometimes we mess up, but because we love them and desire better for them. John says that God's commands are not burdensome. But now don't confuse that with them being easy. What John means is just what we've been talking about. To love each other is to, keep, is to keep God's commands because keeping God's command leads to a fullness of life. God's commands don't hold us back but spur us on towards something better. God's commands lead us into a kingdom kind of life, a place that looks more like heaven than hell. Keeping God's commands lead us into a, into a perfect kind of love, a more kingdom kind of life, the best kind of life. God's construct instructions or commands or laws are not meant to bring us down or hold us back. They aren't meant to be burdensome. Actually, they're meant to be the opposite. They're meant to lead us into a fullness of life. And that perspective is so important for us as a church as a whole to understand. Because if we misunderstand God's commands and use them as a measuring stick to judge each other's worthiness of the name Christian, or worse, to judge the level of the wickedness of the people who are outside of the world, or in, outside of the church in the world, rather than lovingly guide people towards the fullness of life because we actually care about them, we will get eaten alive by the world. And unfortunately, that's what we see happening right now. It's happening in our political world. It's happening in our media, it's happening in our churches, it's happening in society at large. You see, each time, each time something major happens, something significant happens, we as the church, and I don't mean this as just Ivan Rest, I mean this as, as the church that gets to be on TV, we've been polarizing ourselves. We shout condemnation. We declare a violation of God's standard and attach it squarely to a person's value and worth. We've been using God's rules as a measuring stick of someone's worth. And as a result, we're badly losing our voice within the world. Now, each time something major happens, we as the church must climb back out of the hole we've created and speak in, to, in order to speak into any of the major issues of the day. And if you don't believe me, we can look at some of the major ones. Is anyone coming to the church? to speak a loving or, or uniting word about the homo, with, into the homosexual conversation. What about the transgender one? I'm sure you've seen it in the news recently, right? Caitlin or Bruce Jenner, which, whichever way you want to go on that. He's all over the news. Everybody's talking about it except for the church. We aren't leading any of the conversations. And honestly, they're, they're spiraling pretty far away from what we would say was biblical truth. Or we can look in the political sphere. Is the church of love, or is the church the voice of love within the political sphere? Are we speaking a message of unity? Are, are we speaking a message of reconciliation, of, of compromise, of a way to get things done? Honestly, can we even have that loving conversation within our own congregations? 
brothers and sisters, we know that we are children of God. Those who believe in Jesus are saved and are valuable in God's eyes. It says that at the beginning of this passage. The, our value is not up for debate. But, John says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. If we don't step up and begin to listen here to the words of John, we will be consumed by the message of the world. Right now, the kingdom message, the message of hope for something better, is being drowned out by a message that only leads to emptiness. We're losing our voice now, and we have been for a while, but we don't need to anymore. There is a way back. There is a way to make our voice relevant again. And it's not by yelling louder or protesting more frequently or by more rigidly declaring our truth. John tells us exactly what we need to do. He says, this is how we love God. We love his children and do what he said because his commands are not burdensome. They're life-giving. When we get that, When we begin to live like that, when we begin to care for each other, to love each other in the way God has commanded us to, we will experience the life God has promised. And John says, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Love overcomes the world. Living a kingdom life overcomes the world. Love regains our voice because it shows a different way. It shows the way of unity, the way of hope, the way of fullness, expressed not by loud yelling or argument, but by diligently spurring each other on towards something better. Because if we were to live a kingdom life, the world could not help but notice. So you may be thinking, all right, that's great. We love to regain our voice. But the kind of love that John's talking about here is hard. The kind of love that's able to wade through this mess, to love people that are hard to love, is incredibly difficult. You'd say it's very hard. You may say it's impossibly hard. And you'd be right. It is impossibly hard for us on our own. By ourselves, we cannot live the kind of life God has called us to. We can't even come close. Because honestly, there are people out there who are amazingly hard to even like. Right? Amazingly hard to be kind to, let alone sacrificially love. But John knows that. Which is why he says the one who overcomes the world is the one who believes Jesus is the son of God. The one who realizes what Jesus has done for us and that his power is what all of this hinges on. We cannot love the world in a sacrificial way unless we first understand what Jesus did for us. The fact that while we were still sinners, he died for us. While we didn't deserve it, while we were unlikable, while we were unlovable, while we were completely rejecting him, he still sacrificed everything for us. And without that understanding, there's no way we can live within this world that way. The part of 1 John that we didn't read today explains that Jesus is who he said he was and that this love that we've been talking about only comes through that understanding and through the power of his Holy Spirit. 
The world is filled with, a, with contrary messages. Messages that work day and night to pull us away from the kind of life God has called us to live. And honestly, those messages are tempting or confusing or overwhelming. They seem easier, but when we get to the end, we find there's emptiness in them. They seem to make more sense, but when we play them out, there's nothing there. We struggle daily to discern the message of God through the noise of this world. And we realize there are some complicated conversations we need to have. The issues we talked about earlier are not easy. They're multifaceted. They're confusing. Whenever we take complex issues and make them too simple, we screw up a lot of things. The Bible tells us, we talked about the church needing to lead in, a homo, in the homosexuality conversation. The Bible tells us that homosexuality keeps us from the fullest life possible. It calls it sin because of that. It's not a salvation issue, right? If someone loves Jesus, they are accepted as a child of God, but it is something that keeps them from the fullest possible life. The Bible also tells us that people are created in the image of God. All people are created in the image of God and are loved by Him. And so, how do we as a church affirm a person? who's created in the image of God, regardless of their sin struggle. Well, we give, treat them with respect, treat them with dignity, treat them with the understanding that they may have the ability to hear where God is leading them, while also at the same time encouraging them to, towards the best kind of life possible. That's hard, right? And the same argument applies to the transgender conversation. It's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly complicated. And we can't oversimplify it. We can ask the same, conver- same questions about the, about the political conversations. How do we engage in difficult political conversations that need to be had? The issues are multifaceted. The information is incomplete. But we need to be able to engage with them in a loving way. Because I'm going to break it to you all gently. The rep- The Republican Party is not right about everything. It isn't God. Right? Neither are the Democrats or the Greenpeace or the Libertarians. You take your pick, whatever your flavor is. Uh, None of them are God. All of them require thought. All of them require discernment. All of them require us to have a conversation. All All of them require a voice of love and unity. So how does the church help lead actually productive conversations where we stop treating our political atmosphere like a sports arena where we want a team to win and actually try to advance ourselves together. Now those things are tough. The issues aren't easy. And there are many more of them as well. These areas are incredibly complicated but they are key areas in which the church now needs to show the world a different way. Not by yelling louder, not by making better arguments, but by loving more perfectly. To affirm what needs to be affirmed while challenging appropriately what needs to be challenged in the right way. And it won't be simple. It won't be easy and it probably won't be as straightforward as we would like which is why we need Christ in our lives, like John says. 
John finishes his book by saying, we know that the Son of God has given us understanding. The only way to wade through this mess is to firmly and securely fix your eyes on Jesus. To seek to love him first, to love him completely, to love him fully, because out of that comes true love for each other, the kind of love that can overcome this world. For he is the true God and the eternal life. John ends his book by warning us all of these contrary messages. He knows there will be distractions. He knows there will be things that will draw our attention away from Jesus and confuse our message within this world. And we have unfortunately in so many places let these things distort the message of hope we find in Jesus Christ. So as we close today, we're going to do it in the same way John did. And say, dear children, speaking to me, speaking to you, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from those distractions. And live the kind of life that shines hope and love into the dark places of this world. The kind of life, the kind of love that overcomes the emptiness the world has to offer. Let's pray. Father God, we know that this world is filled with contrary messages, messages that are confusing, messages that are difficult, messages that are hard to discern and hard to wade through and then even harder to carry out. God, we pray for wisdom. We pray for your guidance, your will, your way. We pray that, we, that you help us, give us the ability to persevere and to firmly fix your eyes on you so that we can see truth and love out of that. We pray that Ivanrest Church and the church in general can be a place, a voice of love, a voice of peace, a voice of reconciliation rather than division. And we pray all of these things to the salvation we have in Jesus Christ and the hope that's given through the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you, join, if you can all rise now and join me to sing our final song.